Well, throughout our study of the book of Leviticus, we have seen over and over again God's concern for his people to be separate from the peoples around him, or around them, I should say. This morning, as we look at Leviticus 21, what we're seeing is that there is also to be a separation within the people of God. And so, as we come to Leviticus 21, we are provided with uh, a series of regulations concerning the priesthood and the high priest. While all God's covenant people were called to be holy and therefore separate from the pagan world around them, the priests were in a special position within the Israelite community. Beside the separation laws that applied to all the Israelites, the priests were called to express a degree of holiness that would separate them even from the other Israelites. The priests were to be unique examples of the high standards that God required for his holy people. In addition, the high priest himself was to exhibit an even higher grade of holiness, commensurate with that particular special office. You have within Israel this division then of the people and the priests and the high priest. And these divisions corresponded with the divisions of the tabernacle. You have the outer courtyard open to the people to come with their sacrifices. And you have the holy place where only the priests were allowed to enter. And then, of course, the holy of holies where only the high priest could enter, and that only once a year. And the closer a person was to the symbol of God's presence, the greater degree of holiness that was required. You see a similar dynamic at work within the New Covenant Church. When Paul writes to Timothy about the qualifications of eldership, and as you read through those qualifications of the eldership in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you see the qualifications which Paul sets forth, one of the things that you recognize is that these are simply qualifications which should be meant by every, Christ, every Christian. They are to be characteristic of every child of God. The difference is that for elders, they must possess those qualities. Here in Leviticus 21, although instructions were addressed to the priests in particular, all the children of Israel were to hear and understand them. All the people were to be involved in helping to keep the priests in their special holy state. Now, as we know, the priesthood in Israel was not to be open to everyone. It was hereditary. It was limited to the descendants of Aaron, which is another way of making Israel unique from the nations around them, because that's not how it went in the pagan religions of the Canaanite nations. 
The priesthood in Israel could not be obtained through inheritance or money or influence or appointments made at the whim of a ruler. Israel's priests had solemn tasks to perform requiring extensive preparation. They were not only required to carry out religious ceremonies within the sanctuary and away from people's gaze, but they were at the same time to live in the community among the other tribes of God's people. You'll remember that when Israel came into the promised land, every tribe got a piece of land for its own, except the Levites. They were scattered throughout the land to live among God's people. They alone were set apart in that way. They were a people set apart from all others and yet among the others. They were a living illustration of being in the world but not of it. Now the first main section that we're Coming to, in this chapter this morning, Leviticus 21, restricts the priesthood in how they should behave when family deaths occur and also instructs them in regard to who they can and cannot marry. There are rules for the priests and additional rules for the high priest. First, you see the rank and file addressed in verses 1 through 9. And it begins by addressing these rules for mourning. How are the priests supposed to be different from everyone else when someone close to them dies? Chapter 21, verse 1 begins this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father, and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. Here we see a very significant difference between the old covenant priesthood and the new covenant eldership. The Old Covenant priests, of course, were strictly prohibited from coming into contact with dead bodies. I do funerals. That would be kind of difficult. The only funerals an ordinary priest was allowed to attend were those of relatives close to him. Verse 2 his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or an unmarried adolescent sister. You'll notice something missing from that list. Missing from that list of blood relatives is any reference to the priest's wife. 
Now, some consider that it should be taken for granted that she's included, even though she's not mentioned. A wife is one flesh with her husband. Maybe. Others look at that particular phrase in verse 21, verse 4, and they see something else. The New American Standard uses the translation, a relative by marriage among his people. If you're still using the King James, the King James translates it as a chief man among his people. And it really is, a, in the Hebrew, an obscure phrase. I'm not sure even Hebrew scholars really know how to translate that for us. It's, it's a difficult thing. Some would suggest that if we see it as the King James translators did, to mean a chief man among his people, then it's saying that although he is a husband in the community, he must not become unclean, even in the case of his wife's death. That he is that one who stands out from everybody else, and this is a key way in which he's going to be different. But given the context of the previous verses, most conservative evangelical scholars understand the phrase to forbid a priest from becoming unclean by participating in a funeral, not of his wife herself, but of any of her close relatives. So you can insert your own in-law joke here, but we're going to move on. Once again, we're seeing this emphasis on the avoidance of defilement. In verse 1 and verse 4, he is not to defile himself. He is not to profane himself. And this reminds us that the priest has been brought through the cleansing rites of his ordination to a holy state. To defile or to pollute is the opposite of cleansing. And as uncleanness is incompatible with holiness, the priest's action means that he is making himself unholy, which is what it means to profane something, in this case, the priest himself. And in the Levitical law, a dead body was one of the worst sources of pollution. All who came in contact with a corpse were automatically unclean for seven days. Holiness is associated with life and is connected with God's judgment on human rebellion. Death is. That's the opposite. Death and life, two different things, and, and, and setting forth two different understandings of what it means to be in relation to God. Are we holy and separate unto him? Or are we profane? Are we of the world? All those associated with this God have to keep far away from anything resembling the antithesis of life. But, as we've seen, there is a special exception made in the case of blood relatives. In mourning for them, like the rest of the people, they are not to follow the custom of the pagan nations. Shaving the head, cutting the beard, cutting one's own body were all part of pagan ritual funeral rites. Defacing their bodies in these ways, the Lord tells them, means that they would be, no, that, that they would be less than 
hole and any obvious blemish or disfigurement as goes the chapter later goes on to uh, specify would be inconsistent and incompatible with holiness and so they've got to refrain from anything that is connected with paganism because the priests like the people are to be holy to their god but the priest's holiness is of an even higher order in that they are closely associated with god and they minister in the sanctuary receiving the sacrificial food the food of their god as it says they are to refrain from any actions then that would profane the name of their God, drag God's name through the dirt, dishonor the God whom the priests are called to serve and to represent before the people. In verses 7 to 9, we turn to the issue of marriage. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for, she, for he, the priest, is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So priests are to be careful whom they marry, remembering again that they are to be holy to their God. Marriage to a woman who has been defiled by prostitution or is divorced is therefore for the priest out of the question. This means that they are only allowed to marry virgins or widows, there must be no question at all in regard to the woman's moral or ritual state because she was about to become one flesh with the priest. And the priest was to be holy to his God. And though the priest was separated from the rest of the covenant community through his special holy status, in order to receive the sacrifices made to God, the community had the duty of sanctifying him which included treating him as holy making sure that he didn't enter into these forbidden relationships there is this understanding here of community in this regard we hear a great deal today about shame and it is almost universally spoken of as a negative thing Brothers and sisters, shame can be a good thing. Shame can be a warning. Shame can keep people from making destructive decisions and engaging in destructive actions. And that's one of the things that is going on within the community of Israel. This is why God is intent on saying these things not only to the priests, but he wants everybody to know the priest's responsibilities, what those restrictions are. The holy God who had set Israel apart, who continued to make them holy, called upon his people at this point to recognize the holy status of the priest. He shall be holy 
to you, verse 8 says. Now, as a kind of appendix to the laws of priestly marriage, we have this law given in verse 9, which states that the daughter of a priest who defiles herself, who profanes herself by becoming a prostitute, also profanes her father. Her action reflects on the rest of her family, and drastic measures are needed to clear up this state of affairs. And we're told that if this should happen, she shall be burned with fire. And this, this is placed in a very significant location in the chapter because it seems to be a transition here. It's placed where it is in order to show that it applies to the high priest as well as to all of the other priests because the Lord now makes that transition in verse 10 to speak of the high priest as distinct from the priesthood in general. And he provides the high priest with rules for mourning as well. Look at verses 10 through 12. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself, even for his father or his mother. Nor shall she go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. So the highest standards are expected from the priest who is preeminent among his fellow priests. And that's the way to look at the high priest. Yes, in one sense, he's one of the priests, but he's also above the other priests. He is more closely associated with that which is holy because he is the one who once a year goes into the holy of holies. He enters into that most holy part of the tabernacle on the day of atonement. Death is the very antithesis of what God stands for. And so the high priest must not come anywhere near a dead body or show any signs of mourning over the dead. His high and unique position is symbolized by the anointing oil on his head, the robes of office that he wears. Whereas all the priests had their clothes anointed with oil, only the high priest was anointed on his head. And he therefore must not show the customary signs of mourning, which would be tearing the clothes, throwing dust on his head. That would be a way of covering up that anointing which he was given and nullifying the anointing. So the high priest can't even express his grief. It's because of the anointing on his head that he must not cover the head. It's because his robes are holy that he can't tear his clothing. Furthermore, the high priest was not to go to the place where the, there was a dead body. He was not even to make himself unclean by going to the funeral of his parents. Other members of the family were to be called in to bear that responsibility. When the text declares that he must not go out of the sanctuary in verse 12, it doesn't imply that he was to be imprisoned in the tabernacle for life. 
It means that his duties in the sanctuary came first, even above the normal responsibilities expected of sons. If, therefore, a death occurs at his home while he's officiating in the sanctuary, he's to remain at his post. Because all in the home of that deceased person would be ritually unclean for seven days. It would also be necessary for the high priest to remain in the sanctuary for that period until all the rituals for purification have been carried out. Otherwise, he would desecrate or profane the sanctuary of his God. We see something here, don't we, of the cost of service. The New Testament talks about the cost of discipleship. This is the background that we have to that shocking thing that Jesus says to a would-be disciple who asks if he can first go and bury his father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And there are echoes of Leviticus 21. There is a priority in life. The priority for the high priest was the service of God no matter what. It's our priority as well. If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, if you claim that God comes first in your life, we are, as Christians, as the priesthood of believers, we are all set apart for God, under God's rule, and only one thing matters, our consecration unto Him. It is not optional. And there are things that must be sacrificed for it. Just as priests were confined in regard to who they could marry. Same is true for us as New Covenant believers. Where we are commanded not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Of course, our duties in many respects are far different. Our duties toward parents come under our duty toward God. He has commanded us to care for our parents to honor our parents. But he still says, I first love me so much that the love you have for your parents looks like hate. Those called to the Christian ministry need to understand this as well following the great high priest, being examples to the covenant community. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. In verses 13 through 15, you have again rules for marriage, this time uh, continuing in uh, regard to the high priest himself. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. 
And so once again, we're seeing the high priest is also more restricted than the ordinary priest in regard to who he is allowed to marry. One commentator observes that the purity and singleness of this devotion to God are to be reflected in the purity and singleness of his marriage relationship. And it's mentioned twice for emphasis that he can only marry a girl of marriageable age who is living in her, father, in her own father's house. She must be someone who has had no previous sexual relationships with men, whether legitimate, a widow, or illegitimate. In addition, he must only marry a, a girl from among his own people in the sense of his own family or clan. And by these means, the holiness of the priestly line is being maintained. In particular, it would ensure that there would be no question mark in anyone's mind as to the legitimacy of his first child, who, if it's a son, would be in line for his father's office. While the priest's daughter would figuratively desecrate her father by prostitution, a high priest must see to it that he does not literally desecrate his offspring. The Lord who sanctifies his people also sanctifies the priest. God continues to sanctify those he has already sanctified by calling upon them to refrain from committing acts that would desecrate them and by encouraging them to obey the commandments God has set down. And God is very concerned about this, and he's very concerned with preserving priestly perfection. This is... The second section of the chapter as we come to verse 16 through verse 24. This section introduced again by a reference to God speaking through his chief spokesman Moses concerns those disqualified from being priests. Just because you are of the line of Aaron, just because you're a Levite, doesn't mean you can be a priest. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face or deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among, his descendants of, among the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both the most holy and of the holy, only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. So there are physical reasons for disqualification. Now here again, we see a difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. 
When you read through the qualifications for a new covenant elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's not a thing about the physical body. I'm not disqualified because I'm missing half a thumb. I'm okay. But there are a great deal of moral issues which would disqualify one from the eldership. Here, in regard to the priests, however, there are physical disqualifiers. Aaron is informed that not one of his descendants who has a physical defect is qualified to offer sacrifices to God. And this is really pressed home in verse 21. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's food, his offerings by fire, since he has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Twelve blemishes are specifically listed that exclude an otherwise ritually and morally clean member of Aaron's family from officiating at the altar. Not all of the defects mentioned can be identified. We're not sure. Some of them are just general statements of different kinds of issues. But they include things like being blind and lame, having a facial disfigurement, being deformed, broken hands or feet, uh, being a hunchback, uh, having an eye defect, a scab, unsightly nodules, crushed testicles, these blemishes correspond to the blemishes that disqualify otherwise clean animals from being sacrificed. Though these blemishes prevent a priest from offering sacrifice, we're specifically told they don't disqualify him from eating of the priest's portion of food which has been sacrificed. Holy food you'll remember, includes the priest's share of the peace offering. The most holy food referred to the priest's share of the grain and sin and guilt offerings and the tabernacle bread, the showbread, the bread of the presence. Those things were for the priests, and, and they were included in that. They could participate. They could partake. So all of this meant that any priest with a blemish who was otherwise clean was not barred from the sanctuary because the most holy food had to be eaten in the sanctuary, you'll remember, but he was not to go near the inner veil or the altar of incense lest he profane God's sanctuary. And that seems mean. The modern reader comes to this, and it just sounds outrageous. We've got all of these laws prohibiting people from discriminating against those with physical disabilities. We try to make access for people with physical disabilities as easy as possible. To think that a person would be disbarred from the work he was intended to do on the grounds of a physical disability just rubs us the wrong way. Even listing the disabilities would be considered insensitive by many. 
that this was a deliberate policy set up by the God of the Bible makes it appear even worse. So we need to take a moment in order to put this in perspective. These rules have nothing whatsoever to do with the value or worth of the individual. The law has been quite clear on the need to respect all life, and especially human beings, to treat others as we want to be treated. That includes people with these kinds of issues, various blemishes and disabilities. We, we've got to understand that these regulations, both in the context of the ancient world in which they were given and against the whole background of the holiness of legislation, what is going on here? The people were being taught important lessons through symbolic actions and what we would today consider taboos. Holiness, as we've seen, meant wholeness, fullness of life, completeness, purity. It was expressed not only in moral perfection, but in physical wholeness and normality. A human body that does not noticeably display any defect is one expression of holiness because the priests were in this position representing God before the people. Their physical appearance had to display something of the perfection of God's creation. But we also need to understand this. When God created he called it good. Go back to Genesis, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God creates, and it is good. He created everything perfect, but the fall. Human rebellion marred that perfection. Despite protests to the contrary, it is not normal for any human to be disabled, to have disabling blemishes, to be ill with diseases, these things are witness to the fact that the world is fallen and not what it ought to be. It is a fallen world, an imperfect world, an unholy world. This is not how things were created, nor is it what God has in store for the future. The restrictions, therefore, taught the people that all physical defects and illnesses and are, are ultimately incompatible with God's holiness because they are a result of rebellion against God's holiness. But the promise of God is that he's going to make things right. There will come a time when there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more deformity, when everybody's eyes are going to work properly. Right? That day is coming. All these symbolic restrictions, along with the priesthood itself, have been abolished with the coming of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The process of doing away with all of this has begun with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. His miraculous healings have to be understood against the background of these old covenant symbolic laws relating to disability and purity. 
When he was on the earth, he cured disabilities, and he made people whole. And that is an indication of what he is going to do in completeness in the future. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the fundamental causes of all of our blemishes, moral and physical. Whatever physical and mental problems one may have, in Christ we are spiritually whole and we have free access into the presence of God. No longer are we told that if you've got this or that or the other issue, you cannot approach God. Through Jesus Christ, the way to God has been opened for all of us. And we can look forward to the end of all physical, mental disability in the new creation. This is a theme begun with prophets like Hosea and Isaiah and completed in John when he gives us this wonderful description of the new heaven and the new earth. The physical perfections demanded of the holy priests in the offerings they made to God were deliberately ordained by God to point forward to Jesus Christ, our high priest, and his moral and physical perfection. He is the high priest who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separated from sinners. And so one day will we be. This passage does one other thing that we need to address before we close this morning. This passage is a challenge to all of those who are in leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. And just as the people of Israel were intended to read and understand this, though it was specifically addressed to the priests and the high priests, the people of God, you, need to understand what the Scripture says about Joe and I and those who have been appointed as leaders within local congregations of Christ's church. There is no priestly caste system in the New Covenant Church, but God does call men to the ministry of the Word and to possess authority within the church of God. Paul becomes an example to all elders and pastors and ministers of the gospel when he says in 2 Corinthians 6, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. The highest standards are demanded of church leaders as we see in Paul's list of qualifications for elders that he writes to Timothy and to Titus. John Piper wrote a book many years ago, Two Pastors, entitled Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. His intent was to remind those who have been raised up by God to lead his church that ministry is not just a job. Pastors are not hired guns. Elders need to be more than what the world expects from their local politicians. It is a task so high and burdensome 
that when speaking of it, Paul cannot help to ask, who is adequate for these things? One of the great truths recovered in the Reformation is that of the priesthood of all believers. There is no Levitical priesthood in the New Covenant. There is no more high priest because Jesus is our high priest. Indeed, every Christian is a priest and is to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But that doesn't mean that there are not distinctions made among His people. The Lord has established elders over His church. And He has established not only high qualifications for the office, but He has also placed upon those who hold that office great responsibilities. And yet, as I sought to communicate to our men yesterday at our breakfast, as high as the responsibility is, God has called mere men to fulfill them. So I would take this opportunity to plead with you this morning. Pray. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray not only that we would faithfully fulfill the responsibilities God has placed before us, but pray that we would pursue and exhibit the holiness of God. Father, drive these things home to our hearts today. May we be struck first, Father, with how concerned you are for the holiness of your people. May we understand the priority you place upon our holiness. And may we understand as well, Father, that you have knit us together as your people to help one another in that regard. That together we might pursue holiness. Together, Father, we might lead lives separate from the world and devoted to you. Do this, Father, for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.